This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Hey, Fierce listeners, welcome back to another episode of Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo. For this episode, I spoke with Dublin-based prostitution survivor, feminist, and author Rachel Moran, who was in Vancouver last December, where she was a guest speaker at the annual Montreal Massacre Memorial, organized by Vancouver's Rape Relief. It was quite an honor to speak with her, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with all of you. Also coming up, I have a very sweet soundtrack for this week's episode with music by Zara, Shake That Little Foot, and Kevin McLeod. And as usual, I've got Women Hurrying History featuring feminist historian Gerda Lerner, whose books and dedication to women's history partly inspired this very podcast. But before we get to Women Hurrying History and to wrap up the speedy intro, here's Statues by hip-hop artist Zara. A moment in history, her story, women hurrying history.
Bill Lerner was an Austrian-American author, professor, and historian who pioneered and propelled the creation of women's studies and women's history in the 1960s. In the early 1980s, Gerda was a president of the American Organization of Historians, and she helped to establish Women's History Month, which is celebrated each year in the month of March. As a student at the New School for Social Research, Gerda noticed the lack of women leaders and history in her academic courses, both at the undergrad and graduate studies level. She was often told by her professors that women's history wasn't an important enough subject to pursue and advised her to stick with real quote-unquote history. While being the fire starter that she was, Gerda furiously dedicated her career and life pursuing women's history and culture. According to the traditional view, women had contributed very little to the making of human society and even less to the making of the intellectual product of Western civilization. Now I knew that not to be the case. I knew that that was false. The fact is that women do have a history, that they have participated in making history, but that we have not until very recently uh, recognized that. And that has created enormous problems for society as a whole, for both men and women. Her groundbreaking book, The Creation of Patriarchy, first published in 1986, is a culmination of Goethe's research on women's history and takes a radical intellectual approach at centering gender and women in the creation of Western culture and history. Through this approach, Gerda has been able to analyze the historically damaging social and psychological impacts of erasing women out of history and how patriarchy shapes the socialization and destinies of men and women. The effect on men has been very bad too mm -hmm. of the omission of women's history because men have been given the impression that they are much more important in the world than they actually are and that's not a good way to become a human being. Mm -hmm. It has fostered illusions of grandeur. Mm -hmm. If you can think as a man that everything great in the world and in civilization was created by men, then naturally you have to look down on women. And naturally you have to have different aspirations for your sons and for your daughters. And I don't think that's good for men either. One of the most powerful statements Goethe writes in the creation of patriarchy is for women to be woman-centered and as far as possible to leave patriarchal thought behind. In doing so, women can begin to trust their own female experience as a legitimate human experience. In this way, women can and must pursue women's culture and intellectual work in order to build woman-centered narratives and theory so as to shape a world that is truly human. Gerda Hedwig Kronstein Lerner was born on April 30, 1920 in Vienna, Austria and passed away on January 2, 2013 in Madison, Wisconsin at the age of 92.
A moment in history. Her story. Women hurrying history. Welcome back to Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo, and you just heard Sally Ann, an Irish-inspired track by the English band Shake the Little Foot. My featured guest for today's episode is Dublin-based prostitution survivor, feminist, and writer Rachel Moran. Starting at 15 years old, Rachel was prostituted throughout Ireland for seven years. 
After getting out of the sex industry, Rachel entered the Dublin City University, where she completed a journalism degree and won the Hybrid Award for Excellence in Journalism. Her memoir, Paid For My Journey Through Prostitution, was published in 2013, and Rachel continues to fight for the abolition of prostitution through lectures and campaigns such as Turn Off the Red Light. In 2012, Rachel co-founded Survivors of Prostitution Abuse Calling for Enlightenment, an international organization of prostitution survivors fighting for the end of prostitution and the sex industry. I spoke with Rachel in December in Vancouver, B.C., where she was a guest speaker at the Montreal Massacre Memorial, an annual gathering organized by Vancouver Rape Relief. Hi, Rachel. Uh, thank you here for being on Misrepresent in lovely Vancouver. How are you? I'm grand, I'm grand. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of your work and of your book, Paid For, My Journey Through Prostitution, and I'm really glad that you've been here in Vancouver for the last few days talking about your experiences. Yesterday, you were at UBC talking with a handful of students about your experiences in prostitution. So can you just tell my audiences, or for those who don't know who you are and the work that you do, how did you get into prostitution as a, as a young teenager? Um, I ended up in prostitution from a situation of adolescent homelessness. I was 15 at the time and I had been homeless on and off for over a year at that point. And so it's a very typical story. It was very similar to the stories I saw around me during those years. The theme of your talk yesterday was called What the Sex Ray Doesn't Want You to Know. And a lot of it you talked about poverty and the lack of choices and in the pro-sex lobby movement that hardly ever comes up or at least the impact of poverty isn't really something that is highlighted it's always about the choice so is that one of the things that the pro-lobby movement doesn't want you to know or the sex trade movement doesn't want the wider audiences to really understand the poverty and the lack of choices well, they're framing prostitution as an issue of choice and consent and agency. So, of course, they don't want people to understand that choice and consent and agency exists in such a very extremely tight and narrow sense that it may as well not exist at all. You could um, frame what the sex trade lobby doesn't want you to know in the space of a single word. And if you were to do that, that word would be truth. They simply don't want you to know the truth. It does not suit their agenda. Now, yesterday was really interesting because you started by saying that there are certain terms that you don't necessarily agree with. And one of them was, and if you just correct me, was that you didn't want to say uh, the sex trade, but you would rather call it an institution in terms of the trafficking and the prostitution of women. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What I had said was that I don't like the word industry in connection with prostitution. Um, I use trade rather than industry because with industry you have a lot of strong connotations which are positive. The idea that we have about industries is that there's something that give back to society, whereas prostitution is something that only ever takes away. What is the taking away? Because most people will say, well, prostitution or sexual services provides pleasure. Um, you have industries or you have companies where disabled men can access women. Where do you stand on that? Is that something that takes, takes away from a woman? But how do you respond to those who say, well, these women are giving something back to these men? Well, I'd say that's just bald, ridiculous and, and you know, amusing almost. Um, on the issue of pleasure, I would say pleasure for who? 
you know who's getting the pleasure and since when was pleasure ever an excuse that we would use or a free pass that we would give to look the other way to violation and oppression it's absolutely crazy that um, any of our opponents would say that this is an issue of pleasure it's it may well be an issue of pleasure um, for the men involved for the exploiters and since when was there pleasure anything that we should frame legislation around now, some of the, con- the conditions of prostitution is really one of, an, of violence. In fact, you've written extensively about that in your book, that violence is inherent in prostitution, and even in your experiences, you've had a gun held at you. You've had your head stabbed by a bottle. You've been beaten numerous times. And yet the assumption that there is no violence in prostitution, if we made it legal, that it would go away. How do people separate that, or, or how, do people are, how are they able to gloss over that? Well, I remember when I was 16 having a conversation with a friend of mine. We were actually standing in the red light zone prostituting at the time. She was a couple of years older than I was, and we were talking about the issue of legalization. And I remember saying to her that maybe if this was legalized, we would be safer. Um, I was utterly clueless as to what actually went on in legalized countries, legalized under legalized regimes where you decriminalize pimps along the style of what's going on in New Zealand um, or where you legalize and regulate along the lines of what's going on in certain states in Australia um, and across Europe, at least a half a dozen different European countries. When you move into those zones of legislation, what you do is you increase the market. That happens immediately. And you inc- every level of violence out there that you can imagine has been documented to shoot up dramatically under those regimes. So in my ignorance at the time, I had some sense that legalization might put some kind of shape on this that uh, controlled or contained what was happening within it. And a lot of people, well-intentioned people, argue for these structures out of a sense of genuine concern for the women involved. And I do recognize that a lot of that concern is genuine, but it's also dangerously misguided. And we need to, before we start thinking about the legislation we should frame, we should look at the way that that's shook down in the countries that have had it, because some of, some of those countries have had it for decades. Mm-hmm. Holland has had it now for, what, since the 70s? It's, it's been around for a long time in Holland. And we can see the absolute rancid effect that that's had on Dutch culture and Dutch people and Dutch women in particular. Thank you for that, because as we were talking before, I've been to Holland and to the red light district and could really see that it didn't actually, the legalization of prostitution didn't actually stop, for example, street prostitution, as a lot of pro-legalization lobbies will say, they would stop street prostitution, but I still saw it there happening, actually. So it didn't actually stop it at all. No, of course it didn't. And I mean, you can't stop anything by encouraging it. It's, <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> bloody dumb, actually, when you think about it. That people, you know, what, what we buy into, what we buy into as people when we don't understand issues. I've no doubt, I've been guilty of it on other issues that I would be clueless about. Um, but people really need to interrogate, like I said, what, what has happened in these countries. I mean, in New Zealand, they've only had their decriminalized regime since 2003. And people, people like the sound of the word decriminalization. They like it. And they may have good genuine reasons for liking it in other areas. But when they try to apply that to prostitution without understanding the effects that it has, that's where the wheels of the logic come right off. Um, 
2003, I mean, that's only 12 years, and already the market has massively expanded. Women who are prostituting in New Zealand right now tell me that there's been an absolute wave of trafficking from the Asian countries nearest to New Zealand. You're talking about very young Asian women who are just being transported into this industry because don't forget once you increase demand you also must increase supply when you increase demand in this um, sector as some people like to put it immediately the pimps will move in to make their profit and that's the nature of capitalism why are we pretending that prostitution is exempt from the the um, the rules of capitalism when it is in fact the most viciously capitalistic practice on earth. I completely agree with you, completely. And I love what you mentioned um, earlier in your presentation that you would, what was it you said that you would like to see any liberal try to justify prostitution if they have an understanding of capitalism? Yeah, and I said that I'd love to see that for, for the comedic element because, it, I mean, it would have to be just bald amusing. You cannot have any kind of grasp on what capitalism is and an issue with capitalism as the institution under which we, we all live and, and are harmed by in various ways and at the same time stand over prostitution. You just can't do it. I wanted to ask you in terms of the survival strategies that you've written about in your book. I mean, in one ways they're almost cheeky, but then they're also really horrifying. One of the lessons that you learned one night after you were beaten, you said like, next time I, you know, you should check through the window to see if, if this punter is drunk and then not get into his car. Another time you said like, you know, you should try to stay away from the laneway hedges. These are survival strategies and apparently skills that you pick up in prostitution, but these aren't skills that you really transfer to other jobs. So can you talk in terms of the particular skills that people, that pro-lobbyists say you pick up or you earn or you learn in prostitution, which seems to be very specialized according to pro-sex lobbyists, but these are not, these are survival tactics. I would love to listen to them explain and describe exactly what the skills are that they feel are transferable into any other area of life. The only other area of life I can imagine these skills are transferable into would be straight into a, a violent relationship. Um, you might um, be able to make some use of your prostitution history there, um, but that's where it would end. I mean, what I learned in prostitution was just always how to how to watch out and how to try to protect and defend myself. and. Usually that was through um, learning to predict when violence was on its way. Um, and that does stay with you, but it's certainly not any kind of recommendation for prostitution. In fact, in your book, the one line that really stayed with me was you said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not like you don't think the violence is going to happen, it's just like you know it's going to happen. You just know. Like it's going to happen already, so you're just waiting for it. Is that how, you, how your everyday life was? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that, it was not a matter of if the violence would happen, it was a matter of when, so you were always in this, I think I wrote, constant uh, state of anticipatory watchfulness, and that's what that was about. It was about judging when the violence would arrive in order to be able to try to protect yourself. And when I talk about the violence, I'm talking, of course, about physical violence. What people, the biggest part of this picture that people so often miss is that prostitution is violence in and of itself. It is violence to buy your way inside of someone else's body. It is, in fact, pathological behavior, and it's high time we started holding men accountable for it.
you brought up a story in terms of yourself where you were your there was an attempt to recruit you to do films can you talk a little bit more about that because um, I thought that, that was a very powerful story is pornography used to normalize prostitution and sec- sexual violence they normalize each other in my view I mean, I'm 100% on board with the work that anti-pornography campaigners do. It's just that um, if I could split myself into two people, I'd go off and join them. Um, we just have we have too much on our plate in the particular area that we're working on to take on board pornography also. But like I said earlier on, the women who work solely um, focused on pornography, they're our friends and allies and colleagues, and we support them fully, and they support us. So do you also think that pornography is just prostitution on camera because a lot of people will say no it's not I would say definitely that it's prostitution on camera but it's more complex than that Um, like I said yesterday when I was asked about this when I was asked to do films years ago and I had done um, I had done photographic pornography in the the brothel that I was in at the time, which was specifically for underage girls, there wasn't a girl over teens in that place. Um, And the photographs that the men took of you there were pictures that they would take um, before or after they had used you. So it was wrapped up in, the two were wrapped up together. So that's a good example of how tightly entwined they are. And also now uh, it's a very common practice that women will have to have Um, pornography playing on a television in the room while they're prostituting um, for the benefit and pleasure and sick satisfaction of course of the men who are using them Um, so these are completely entwined I mean I got out of prostitution in 98 but it was in the late 90s that the internet really took off in Ireland and women who were prostituting in the years after I got out all tell me that pornography became very bound up with their prostitution lives because this is what the men who were buying sexual access to them wanted. But what I had said when I was asked that question yesterday was that I had, I had reacted very, very negatively. It was just this gut-level feeling, just this absolute no when I was asked to do films in, in pornography. And... Um, and I've, I've interrogated that a little bit for myself in, the, in more recent years because I wondered, I mean, what I, what I was going through every day was horrible enough, but I was, I was forcing myself through it and I was um, just about able to, to deal with it and to block my mind off to it. So I wondered and I asked the question of myself, why was the pornography an absolute flat no, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a line that you would not cross? And I eventually came to the understanding that what it was about was prostitution was something that I was bearing for the sake of somebody's pleasure and satisfaction but there was a an added layer of contempt um, to the idea of pornographic films for me because I felt that I would be living the same horrible experience but on camera and for the benefit of people's entertainment and that was a distinction for me why did you start your organization, Space International, and who are the women who are actually involved? We have women from across seven nations now involved in space. Um, we've had many more applicants, um, which we have all on file. But what we want to do is keep our group um, manageable. And we, have, we only take on women who are and already have been activists in their own right. We're not trying to encourage women into activism w- within the realm of our group. 
um, because I think that that's a very personal decision and it's a huge decision for any woman to make. So the, the entire purpose, you asked me why, why it was founded in the first place. It was founded because what I had discovered on my travels was that women everywhere were saying the same thing. And, and I thought it was incredibly powerful to me, you know, indigenous Canadian women and black um, US women and um, white women from, you know, impoverished areas of Eastern Europe and find that no matter where I went or who I was talking to, women were all saying the same thing and I thought that I, I that struck me as very powerful and I knew if it struck me as powerful um, being a woman who who had lived it it would strike people who had no idea as very powerful because if you sit in front of a panel and you have um, a black woman a white woman a brown woman an English woman you know a German woman a Danish woman and, and so on and so forth and you, you hear them and you hear the reality of their lives in all these different disconnected places. Women who had never known each other back in the day. Um, I mean, even our US members, they were all prostituting in completely different cities and didn't know each other while they were actually in the life. Um, and they're all drawn the same conclusions. That's a very powerful thing. And I felt that as a movement, we ought to harness that and showcase that in order to raise awareness, educate people. You shared that the violence that you experience in prostitution, which is quite horrific. But then you're also experiencing violence now, just doing your work um, fighting against the institution of prostitution. Can you compare the violence? I mean, are they comparable? I mean, you know, because it's like you're never leaving that state of violence at all. I think they're comparable on a psychological level. And I said this recently in an article that I wrote. Um, they're not comparable in every sense, of course, because I'm not being sexually violated every day. Um, thank God <laughs> at this time. Um, but, you know, they're comparable in one particular sense, which is very um, twisted and sadistic. And th that sense is you will keep your mouth shut. That's the message behind it. You will keep your mouth shut. And that's a message that you're constantly having to live with in prostitution. I've given you 50 quid. I've given you 100 quid. You will keep your mouth shut. And so now that's what I get on social media all the time. I had my home address released um, by the Pro Lobby a few months ago. Uh, so now every pimp and punter in Ireland knows where to come and find me. And that was a very deliberate um, you know, punishment for, for the article that I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. so my home address was up within like 24 or 36 hours after that article went out. So, um, and that was the first time that I had spoken about the abuse that I get, you know, from the other side of the political divide. So, yeah, the, there is that sense of intense bullying and of trying to silence. And in in that particular way, it's... it's uh, quite similar to psychological violence. Thank you for that. And just one last question. How do you find the strength to not keep your mouth shut because you keep working um, and, and you're an, incredible, an incredibly strong woman who is inspiring a lot of other women to also speak up. So how do you keep going? You know, I just think that um, I just have... Uh, contempt is not even strong enough a word for the way I feel about people who will push a political lie that they know is monstrously damaging and harmful for women all over the world. Women who are much more vulnerable than I am, most of them. M I, and I mean much more. And I'm talking about women all over the developing world. Like women who are living on a few cents a day and having to go through hell for it. 
if these if these decriminalization policies that our political opponents want to have implemented are implemented in these countries do they not understand the absolute hell that they are sentencing those women to in the longer term and not only those women but their children and their children's children given of course that they are girls um it's it's absolutely disgusting and it's it's in the face of that um, that I defiantly keep going because they're just not going to shut us up. We know what prostitution is. They can stop lying about it. And that's, that's a very commonly shared feeling among survivors. And I have to say, like, there are some of us that are more publicly prominent than others only because we've, we've uh, taken part in documentaries or we've written books or whatever. But there are women all over this world who work just as hard as I do and they're working behind the scenes, dealing with politicians and such work and delivering frontline services and doing enormous work around this issue. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. And, um, you know, the public, in the general public, may not be very aware of them, but our opponents are very aware of them. And they know that they've got a problem on their hands with those women, I'm glad to say. Thank you very much, Rachel, for being on Misrepresent. Good luck with your travels, and I will follow your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shirley.
Hey Fierce listeners, you just heard Got Funk by Kevin McLeod, the last track in our lineup, which means we're at the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with feminist author and journalist, Rachel Moran. For more information about Rachel and how to support survivors of the sex industry, check out her blog, theprostitutionexperience.com and the Survivors of Prostitution Abuse Calling for Enlightenment website at spaceinternational.ie. You can listen to past episodes of Misrepresent at misrepresentpodcast.com and make sure to follow me on Twitter at Just Call Me Char for updates on future shows and guests. Intro and outro music by Emily Simone. Additional music by Ben Sound Music, The Arthur Pryor's Band, Steve Combs, Shake That Little Foot, Kevin McLeod, and Zara. Women Hurrying History audio clips is provided by thinkingaloud.com. Fiercest thank you to my guest, Rachel Moran, and shoutouts to Vancouver Rape Relief, Elise Cloma, and Jessica Liao. And of course, thank you, fierce listeners and supporters. Tune in next week for another fierce episode featuring another fierce woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo. This is Miss Represent, Behind the Face of Fierce Woman.